Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, Hercules. Great to be here. Hi, Mary Jo. Hi, Nick. Oh, it's great to have you. This is uh, going to be so much fun. I'm so looking forward to this. Oh, I am too. Okay, the so, show Mary is Jo, go ahead. Oh, is this... Um... Oh, I'm, a, I'm your co-host, yeah, and ahead. I'm talking about Nick. how Nick and I founded the... Disclosure Network New York, a DNNY, a grassroots organization now celebrating our 18th year of providing two meetings a month throughout the year in Manhattan. Uh, We focus on cutting-edge UFO ET issues, a paranormal phenomenon, major health issues, as well as many other related and very important subjects that are in back of the mainstream headlines news Uh, that you never, ever hear about. Uh, In other words, who or what is pulling the strings in back of that curtain? Oh, that's a good way to put it, Nick. Our members do intense, investigative, deep research into various topics and then share that information with the group at our meetings twice a month and on our Internet uh, site, which is www.dnny.info, as well as YouTube, both carrying our recorded DNNY programs. It's a really great way to catch up if you've missed one of our meetings. Now, our motto right from day one is, quote, connecting the dots to seek truth, unquote. Now, we have available to everyone worldwide worldwide, 
the DNNY News Blast email service focusing on the cutting-edge topics of special interest. And yes, it's totally free. Just visit our website, dnny.info, and type in your email address and click to send. Uh, That will then connect you with us and what's going on at DNNY. And believe me, there's a huge amount of going on right now. Many hundreds of people have already signed up for this service. So let's get right to it. Mary Jo, please tell our listeners what tonight's program is about. Nick, Cleveland Clinic says we do not need to worry about cholesterol. Whoa. There, <laughs> <laughs> it's a shock. There is yep. a t- 2015 article on the Cleveland Clinic website written by the heart and vascular team explaining their position. You, the listeners can Google Cleveland Clinic cholesterol 200, pardon me, 2015, and they'll get they'll get the link at the top of their screen. And I will be telling listeners what to Google as we go along. Great. The article explains that cholesterol in our blood does not come from food. About 85% of it is manufactured in the liver. A person can have high cholesterol but this does not mean they need to eat a restricted diet. Now, you may need to gather the information for your doctor. A British study published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine says that it takes, on average, 17 years for research to reach doctor's offices. Now, that study appeared in the December 2011 edition so you'd like if you want to look take a look at it google 2011 december journal of the royal society 17 years and you'll get the link right at the top of your screen well mary joe you already have my undivided attention what you just said is absolutely amazing it's a, it's a bit of a shock because we've been told to avoid cholesterol for 65 years <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's integrated into our culture. It's in television. It's in films. You hear characters talking about their, how they, they have to be careful with their cholesterol. Oh, Let's yeah. take a look at how the whole thing got started. There was an American physiologist named Dr. Ansel Keys. A-N-C-E-L is his first name. And Keys, K-E-Y-S who was responsible. He presented what he called his lipid hypothesis at a World Health Organization meeting in Geneva in 1955, and he was wrong. Apparently, the French did not believe the lipid hypothesis because they never stopped eating cheese, cream, butter, and we'll talk a little later, we'll talk about the benefits of eating cheese. Okay. Now, one of the first scientists to notice that cholesterol is health, actually healthy was Dr. William Castelli, who directed the Framingham Heart Study from 1979 to 1994. Now, Castelli wrote an article for the Archives of Internal Medicine in 1992, 
and he said, in Framingham, Massachusetts, the more saturated fat one ate, the more cholesterol one ate, the more calories one ate, the lower the person's serum cholesterol. Now, serum cholesterol, they're, they're talking about blood, the blood level of, you know, what everybody's afraid of these days. But yep. here we've done, we're, we're just, you know, did, did a, a total 180-degree opposite. Now, the Framingham study is a big deal. It started in 1948, and it is ongoing. The study is now in its fourth generation of participants, and it is one of the largest and oldest that contradicts the diet cholesterol coronary heart disease theory. Another scientist, Dr. D.J. McNamara, in 1997, wrote an article for the Journal of American College of Nutrition titled Cholesterol Intake and Plasma Cholesterol, an Update. He wrote, dietary cholesterol is not related to either blood cholesterol or heart disease deaths. Now, these journals, the, uh, the ones I've mentioned, like the Cleveland Clinic has their own, and then there was the one that uh, Dr. William Costelli wrote for, the Archives of Internal Medicine, and this other one, uh, the American College, pardon me, the Journal of American College of Nutrition. These are very, very prestigious, what are called peer-reviewed journals that are archived in the National Library of Medicine's PubMed database. Now, what peer-reviewed means is that the editor doesn't decide whether a paper has credibility or whether it deserves to be published, a group of the scientists' peers decide. They send it out ahead of time, ahead of publication, and it either, you know, it, it has to get the green light from the scientists' peers in order to be published. Now, to find Dr. McNamara's study, you would simply Google. Now, this um, database has been connected to Google for about seven years, mm. and you would Google McNamara cholesterol and NIH because NIH, those letters are in all of the PubMed uh, links that come up. Mm -hmm. Now, the tragedy in all this is that the nutrition in eggs and dairy, which everybody's been afraid of, is huge. I mean, these are foods that have so much, um, so many important nutrients that we need on a daily basis. And here, for all these years, people pretty much have just, I think, for the most part, just eliminated them from their diet. Maybe eating them maybe once a week, or maybe never. Oh, I know people exactly like what you're saying, and it was just like, this is the way it has to be, no question about it, and we trusted the information, absolutely, and what we're doing here is rethinking everything. Yes, we we have to basically start over. Now, for the people who want to see, for example, what's in an egg, the Blue Cross Blue Shield has a website in Michigan it's easy to find, and it's it's the 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 web address is a healthiermichigan.org, and there's an article about the nutrition in eggs with a really really wonderful chart with 23 nutrients that list 
you know, that's what is in an egg. Right. So that, I mean, that's extraordinary number. That That's very, very high. And the um, to, to help people understand, I've been studying nutrition for about, I would say, 32 years now. Wow. And to help people uh, understand the importance of nutrition, I have a story I'd like to insert, and I call it the Hostess Twinkie story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got my attention. That sounds great. Go ahead. <laughs> now, everybody knows that a Hostess Twinkie, you've seen, you've either eaten them or just seen them. They're like pink, they're spongy, they have sprinkles. They, everybody knows that a Hostess Twinkie doesn't have much nutrition inside. Well, the thing is, when you put something like that in your mouth, your body has, you have to use your body's good enzymes to digest whatever it is you put in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And so in order to make new enzymes, the food that you eat has to have constituent nutrients to make more enzymes. So if you are eating a lot of junk food and you never put anything in your mouth that is of value, you're going to work at a deficit because your body will not have what it needs to make new, important, you know, valuable enzymes to digest your food. There's a huge number of enzymes in the body for all kinds of chemical reactions, and the body has to manufacture them. Now, this could end up in, you know, this could make a person, person age. They could get shorter. They could have less hair. They could ha- lose muscle mass. If you don't eat the correct nutrition, and you can walk up and, and down the supermarket aisles and pass all kinds of food that doesn't have much nutrition in it. That, that is the problem, and that is related to this, what I call a tragedy, that people have been afraid of eggs and dairy all these years. Now, I'd like to talk about protein. Now, eggs and dairy provide the most efficient protein. Eggs are 90% usable. Now, the word usable means or refers to the essential amino acids. Now, there's one that I like to use as an example called leucine, L-E-U-C-I-N-E. Leucine builds muscle mass and bone, and you you find it in eggs and dairy. Now, eggs are 90% usable, meaning they have a very high number of essential amino acids, and dairy is 76% usable. Now, to understand how valuable or how high these numbers are, in contrast, meat, fish, and poultry are only 15 to 20% usable. Wow. And, and plant protein is even less efficient than those three. So dairy and eggs are really up there when it comes to efficient protein. Now let's do some math. Men need about 60 grams of usable protein in a day, and women need 50 grams. A large egg, for example, contains 7 grams of protein, 90% of which is usable. A mug of hot milk provides 8 grams, 76% of that is usable. You know, when I was thinking about 
foods that I could use as an example. I thought about uh, hot milk, and the reason I I put it in is because, Nick, all these years I never asked you if you're a Star Trek fan. <laughs> Do you big, watch Star big Trek? Big time. Memory Joel, big time. Absolutely. I think I've seen well, every single episode. <laughs> you might remember that Captain Picard had an aunt. We never see her, but he had an Aunt Adele who yes. made it hot milk hot milk toddy, and yes. he gives it to Beverly Crusher, who then loves it so much. It's made with hot milk and, mut- and nutmeg, and she keeps giving it to other crew members on the show. I think it shows up in three different episodes. <laughs> but a hot milk toddy, a, a little mug of milk, has eight grams of protein. Wow. Now, the... Uh, the industry. So, in these sixty-five years that have gone by, the, saying that you know to avoid cholesterol that really hurt the egg and dairy industries. And it's so still did, uh, in process. Uh, Mary Jo, I yeah. think you know that there's been a huge assault, especially on milk, uh, yes. in the last few years. I mean, aggressively. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I think you're talking about like substituting like plants like almond milk and soy milk like heavy exactly. aggressive TV commercials also in in whole foods I'm shocked by signs over the dairy case it says milk or dairy it says dairy alternative dairy alternative dairy alternative as you walk along the dairy case yep, as except I said for one thing you're not dairy Right, and plant protein is not even as efficient as meat, uh, poultry, and fish. It's it's very few of the essential amino acids that we need. So it's a mystery to me why there's this aggressive push towards plant protein as a dairy alternative. Now, the question is, which industries benefited all these years? And the answer is... Of course, the pharmaceutical industry and the soy industry. According to Financial Times magazine, before the patent expired in 2011, Pfizer's Atorva statin, known by its brand name Lipitor, was the mm-hmm. best-selling drug in the history of pharmaceuticals. Whoa. And according to the USDA... The U.S. soybean production has increased sevenfold since 1950, making soybeans the second highest valued crop after corn. So those two industries really benefited from this, you know, scare. This is to people terribly afraid of eggs and dairy. They're going to gravitate towards, you know, plants plant protein and of course they'll they're going to take statins statins are uh have terrible side effects i I don't know if you're aware of that they have you get terrible muscle pain there there's even a i was reading yesterday that there's one form of of severe muscle trauma that can that statins can cause it it could be fatal it's a uh yeah it's a it's a it's a scary um well, it's a it's a difficult drug to take. Now let's switch over to calcium. 
Harvard Medical School tells us that adults need 1,000 milligrams of calcium each day, and older adults need 1,200 milligrams. Now, we need calcium to build bone. That's pretty much common knowledge. But we also need protein to build what is called a bone matrix to lay down new bone. And dairy is an efficient source for both, both calcium and protein. We've talked about all the uh, dairy that the French never gave up, cheese, cream, uh, they they never buttered. They never stopped eating any of the dairy. And we also talked about Aunt Adele's hot milk toddy. Let's do the math on some other uh, dairy and see how much calcium is in a few sample different foods. Three okay. tablespoons of, of ricotta cheese provides, this is a lot, this is 606 milligrams of calcium. Now, wow, if you have to get to incredible. that, yeah, if you have to get to that 1,000 or 1,200, a cup of milk provides 300, pardon me, 305 milligrams, and a slice of cheese provides 204. Well, right there, you're over 1,000. So it's, the, it's dairy products, really, that are helpful to get your calcium daily requirements. Now, fat in uh, eggs and dairy also provide energy and food for the brain. The human brain is 60% fat, and it's important to eat foods that are high in what are called essential fatty acids, or EFAs, that are needed to, uh, that we need to obtain in food. That's what that word essential means. Both essential amino acids are uh the building blocks of protein, essential meaning you have to get them in food, and this time we're talking about essential fatty acids that, again, we need to get them in food. The body can't make them, in other words. Mm-hmm. Now, fats are compo- comprised of chains of carbon molecules bonded to hydrogen ions, and saturated fat means saturated with hydrogen. Now, the 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 current we we've been talking about how plants are are heavily promoted and and positioned so to sound like they're more superior to animal protein and we'll read about how much beneficial uh you know like they called essential fatty acids or EFAs are in things like nuts and seeds well those are the polyunsaturated fats and I think, and I was thinking about this right before we started our our show. It occurred to me that the polyunsaturates are very delicate. They have to be kept in dark bottles. The glass has to be so dark because that type of oil, it the the oil can go rancid from the lights, and, okay. and so. Very few, as you walk through the aisle and see olive oil and the various different oils made from plants, they're really not opaque. They're, you know, you, light can get through. If I were to buy olive oil, I'd probably look for it in a, in a tin because that means there's no light getting through at all. Occasionally you'll see a glass uh, container that's almost so... Um, dark, it's black, and the light probably couldn't get through that. But these um, 
these delicate polyunsaturated fats from plants are are difficult and challenging to take care of, and they also have fewer hydrogen ions. Now, hydrogen ions are needed in the body. They, they actually provide energy in the in the metabolic uh, pathways. Plants need hydrogen ions for photosynthesis. So if you're going to eat low-fat or no-fat food, it means you have fewer hydrogen ions for energy. And you may mm -hmm. also end up feeling tired or possibly exhausted. You can actually feel, if, you, if you're tired or you're in an afternoon slump, if you eat some food like, like cheese or something that's, you know, um, has some fat in it, then you'll feel the energy. You, you can actually, it, it, there's, it's a def, definite energy provider. Now, on the subject of eggs, most people <laughs> might groan when they hear that eggs are a source of nutrition, and that's because most hens are raised in cages in factory farms, and the eggs really, really taste awful. The, be the best-tasting eggs and the, the high-quality ones have dark yellow or even orange-looking yolks, and they're kind of hard to find. Some supermarkets and natural food stores sell high-quality eggs, or other sources might include you know, farmers who sell directly or maybe show up at a farmer's market. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got... I've got a couple of organizations uh, for people as resources. Let's say that, like, you know, after the show, somebody, you know, realizes or, the, or, or uh, you know, wakes up and realizes, uh-oh, I better, I better change my diet. Like, you can actually manage – this is really a scary statistic. The, the incidence of uh, type 2 diabetes has quadrupled since the 1950s. That's it starts with what is called insulin resistance. It basically means you're you're flooding your bloodstream and your pancreas is overwhelmed and you're flooding your body uh, with the need to metabolize carbohydrates. And so the solution is to eat, you know, in the other direction, which is um, fat and protein. If you start to eat like eggs and dairy your pancreas won't be overwhelmed, and you'll be suddenly managing your type 2 diabetes. Instead, what do they do? They put drugs on, in, in TV commercials, and they want the, the health industry wants to manage type 2 diabetes with a drug. Well, you, you can just manage type 2 diabetes with, with food. Mm -hmm. So let's say tomorrow somebody wakes up, and they've got to find a place with these wonderful-tasting eggs. Well, there's a website called localharvest.org that's been around since 1998. It was created by a, a computer programmer named Guillermo Payette, and the whole purpose is to help people find farms, food co-ops, and farmers markets across the country. Oh, well, that's a, great. It's an, it's an extremely useful website. Another one is the Weston Price Foundation, Founded in 1999 by a woman named Sally Fallon, it's a nonprofit. It's headquartered in Washington D.C., and it has 250 volunteer chapters across the country as well as internationally. And the chapters exist to help people find high-quality food. So what happens is, 
you can go to their website and find a local chapter that's closest to you and then have a phone conversation or exchange an email with the chapter leader and they can give you, you know, uh, their uh, notes or refer you to farmers who sell direct, things like that. So it, th- these two uh, organizations really provide a wonderful service to help people get really, really, you know, uh, great food, both dairy and also, of course, eggs. Now, if here's the problem. If the entire country wanted to buy high-quality eggs, there probably wouldn't be enough. The, 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 uh, the beautiful eggs that are from pastured hens are just not the, – the, the American Egg Board says that organic cage-free eggs only account for 12.5% of the total. What? A big, huge number, unfortunately, are produced in those factory farms. And Iowa, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Texas lead the country with factory farm egg production. I don't have statistics beyond 2014, but they're a bit of a shock. Iowa produced 16.4 million eggs in factory farm cages in that year. Ohio, 8.7 million. Indiana, 7.7 million. Pennsylvania, 7.5 million. Texas, 5.1 million. It's a bit staggering. Now, the possible solution, not for, <laughs> I know you live on the Upper East Side, but this might be maybe for your, li- <laughs> the up, maybe the Hudson Valley, but the possible solution might be backyard chickens. Mm-hmm. And the, let's say that, you know, your listeners are, in one of those gorgeous towns along the Hudson River, and you know they they'd like to try raising hens. Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Gardner ha- actually have pet, uh, ch- hens. As I think her, her Jennifer's uh, unfortunately, she posted I think a year ago their her hen her pet hen died, but they had a hen they had a hen. I think Reese Witherspoon has a ranch and and has uh, more than several hens. But uh, let's say they, somebody want, was, wanted to do this. The first thing you have to do is find out if the municipality where you live allows it. You know, if, it, if the permission is given, then you're all set. But some c- cities are opposed to the idea. I lived in, in Wisconsin for 10 years, and Madison, Wisconsin, for example, allows six hens. So that's the first step. The next step would be to figure out how you would actually, you know, um, chickens need a chicken coop. And there's an interesting company in Britain but the, and that makes uh, chicken coops, and the company's called Omelette, O-M-L-E-T. And four young men started the company, and it's, it's kind of an interesting story. They, their names are James uh, Tuthill, Johannes Paul, Simon Nichols and William Wyndham, they were actually in design school at Britain's Royal College, and they needed a, a a project for their final year, and James Tuthill's mother suggested that they design a chicken coop. 
Hmm. And the one they they actually they, there was a couple different models that they they've made, and they're really beautiful. They've got features. They've thought they've they've really thought up all kinds of details about you know ventilation for the hens and you know in good and bad weather. Um, you know, all kinds of clean, clean ease of cleaning it. It's just amazing what a beautiful job they did. Now, here's here's an, an amazing part of the story. Their chicken coops have wheels, and uh, there happens to be an American alternative farmer named Joel Salatin, who has a farm called Polyface in Virginia. Now, Joel is. There's alternative farmers, just like there's alternative medical doctors, and Joel is pretty high profile because he popularized what is called rotational grazing. In other words, he moves his chicken coop on a big a commercial size, like he's got a big, huge uh, trailer with, that he pulls around with a tractor with the chicken coop on top, and he pulls it around the pasture to give the hens new grass every 24 hours. Whoa, and wow, good for him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a big deal because this is all about, well, nutrition really begins in the soil. If you have wonderful mm-hmm. soil, then the plants are healthy, and then the animals that need the plants, like these hens, they eat a great diet, and so then we benefit because, of course, the eggs are beautiful and the, and the dairy is wonderful, and it has all the nutrients that we need. So Joel Salatin moves his his hens <laughs> around to fresh grass because, you know, to get the best, the, the, the little buds on the grass that are, you know, the, the, the new growth is what they mm-hmm. go for, and, of course, then... They've got a um, fresh uh, pasture every 24 hours. Now, the other uh, famous person that's involved in this type of thing is Martha Stewart. She, on her website, has two shows that are really amazing about backyard chickens, and she says that she has raised them for over 30 years. And her... You know, Martha Stewart is someone who gives, like, the how-to getting started tips to an extraordinary degree. I mean, she goes into in detail. And in the one um, video on her website, she's got – she opens a carton. It's a big, huge uh, cardboard uh, box. And in it are two-day-old ch- chicks uh, that was that are from the Murray McMurray Hatchery and they were delivered by the United States Post Office. And she takes them out, you know, in her hand, and she shows you what to do, how to feed them, and they're that, that small. And then she goes on to, you know, talking all kinds of de- things about, you know, how to get started with uh, your backyard chickens. She says that the early 20th, part of the 20th century, huge numbers of people had backyard chickens to get high-quality eggs, you know, for their families. Now hens, some of them, there are all kinds of breeds, and if the the people who are, who are going to do this would have to investigate which breeds do well in in each of the different types of climates. For example, Leghorns and Andalusians are suited for hot weather. They're called the Mediterranean breeds. Hens also need animal protein. Pastured hens 
need access to like bugs and worms. So even if the hens are allowed to roam in a residential garden, they will need a supplemental uh, diet of bugs or worms. And examples include mealworms or live worms from what is called a vermiculture system. Young little uh Chicks will need one worm a day when they're three months old and three worms a day when they reach adults at the age of 12 months. That's around the time that a hen will start laying eggs. They lay smaller eggs. A, a young hen is called a pullet, and a, and a, a you know full-grown full adult is pretty much ready to, to lay regular eggs at age you know 12 months. On that note, I'm going to have to interrupt. Uh, we're at the end of today's adventure. I learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to a part two. This is a fascinating uh, topic. Uh, I'm type 2 diabetes, so uh, uh, this was a great interview. Oh, you are? Thing. Really? Yes. I manage it with diet. That's my thought. a firm opinion. Okay, I'll mute it on this end, and uh, um, you guys can wrap up the show. Okay, um, Mary Jo, uh, what we can do also is at the next uh, show, if you want to just uh, do a little bit more to complete your study here, that would be fine, and then we can go on to the next subject. So, yeah, because I don't want to rush this. I was getting very close to the end of. you know, just a little bit talking about verma. It's called vermicomposting, which is worm farms, and that's like a. There's a lot on the. You know, there's YouTube video. There's a, a wonderful uh, vermicomposter called Worm Factory, and and YouTube videos. But it's it's really ideal for people who have backyard chickens. But that that's pretty much it. I I could <laughs> I could really move on to a new topic next time. Okay, very well. But if this was eye-opening. Mary Jo, really, you've you've educated us, and you've you've actually opened my eyes, and I'm sure our listeners also, as to what's the uh, real deal, what's really going on. And of course, we have to rethink a lot of the things that we were told that obviously aren't true. Okay, if anybody wants to contact either me or Mary Jo, you can go to my email, and uh, it which is Nick N Y N Y one at gmail.com, and that one is the number one. So it's Nick, N-Y-N-Y, the number one, at gmail.com. And if it's for Mary Jo, I will pass it on to her. So this is the end of the program. This is Nick Curdo. And Mary Jo Fahey for connecting the dots, wishing you an all-enlightening journey. Um, As you connect the dots to see truth. Till next time, keep informed, stay healthy, and safe. And be kind to one another. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now. Take care. Much love to you all. Mary Jo, are you there?
Greetings. Welcome back to Pride of Olympus. This is Hercules Invictus. Our next segment in our Archons and Aeons episode is Hercules and the Space Gods. And today our guest is Bill Waitman, and we'll be continuing our conversation on ancient artificial intelligence and robots. Greetings and welcome, Bill. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, uh, I, I went through a a large swath of this book. Actually, I got up to uh, uh, Frankenstein, the original book ah. uh, written in the 1800s, and uh, all the sewing of all the meat and everything else. And uh, yeah, even Frankenstein is uh, is a key to artificial intelligence. So we'll we'll, you know, we'll get up maybe to that far. Uh, it's amazing because we started uh, last week with about 3000 BC. And work down to Aristotle and and uh, not yeah. Ar- uh, yeah Aristotle and some uh, and some others uh, getting into uh, uh, at least the uh, uh, I guess it was the 12th 13th century uh, A.D. and and that goes uh, again today. Uh, it's it's amazing when you when you look at this in hindsight and you say wow these were the influences. I mean uh, they, uh, we know from Hercules he was. Uh, uh, for Aristotle, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. that he really uh, was influenced by this, and so were so many others. And uh, it's strange that you think um, uh, uh, we'll get into one called Goyim, uh, which is a, uh, a kind of a, a Jewish robot. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was just yes, and uh, he played a key, like some of the other things, ethnicities change and and along the line, but. They were being persecuted, so they created uh, something along the lines of, of a robot. And, you know, that probably has some kind of uh, impact from later on down, down the road with uh, Frankenstein. Uh, so much, uh, so much, uh, and, and how inquisitive these people were. Uh, that, that's, uh, it's really amazing uh, that they were influenced to such a great degree uh, by that the idea of uh, of progression and what could be, and I don't I don't know for sure. I, I mean, we know that uh, I don't know if the, if this book gets into it, but uh, you know, in Latin America, in some caves elsewhere, uh, there were you know there were drawings and things that might suggest that a force from an, another planet or something came along because uh, we we see something that looks like ships that flew. And uh, yeah. so we'll see where that takes it takes us. Uh, the Egyptians, the Greeks, uh, possibly the Romans, uh, uh, some others going all the way down, uh, somehow had a, a had an idea on what they were creating. I mean, sometimes it would be a, a religious, uh, it would be a church with all kinds of uh, angels and everything in it that were mechanized uh, to work. Uh, there were trains of some sort in some of these uh, uh, these things as as you progress uh, uh, along. So it's really an interesting it's an interesting book uh, at history. Um, now, so we shall start there. Okay, let, let me summarize for those who didn't hear part one. Um, in antiquity, in myths and legends, there are a lot of descriptions of robots. Uh, in Greece, for instance, you had Talos who was a giant robot that patrolled the shores of Crete uh, and protected the Minoans from uh, attack. 
and Hephaestus, who had his forge on Lemnos, and he used to make the divine weapons of the gods, he was assisted by uh, golden women who were robots, uh, and they assisted him in his volcano uh, when he made these uh, weapons. Um, there are also portrayals and descriptions of uh, chariots that flew through the skies. Uh, one of the ones associated with the Hercules legend is that Hercules needed to uh, cross the sea beyond the pillars of Hercules, uh, and he stole a flying craft uh, that belonged to Helios, the sun god, uh, and uh, absconded with it and drove uh, to uh, the island of Geryon, where he uh, um, had his adventure. So there are these descriptions, and beyond Greek culture, into other uh, cultures, there are these descriptions of mechanized people, of intelligent machines, and of technology that the ancients uh, were not supposed to have uh, possessed. Uh, and in historical times, uh, in Alexandria, for instance, in Egypt, during the Hellenistic Age, which was between Alexander and Cleopatra, with a little bit of running into the Caesars, um, there were descriptions of machines that dispensed hot and cold beverages, of automatic doors opening and closing. We know that they had flush toilets and, and good plumbing back then. Um, and uh, there were also animatronics. There were temples where the statues uh, moved, um, very similar to what you would experience in Disney World or the World uh, Fair they had uh, back then. And there's even record of an entire production made up of animatronics, uh, just like you'd have in uh, Disneyland uh, today. Um, so these things did exist. Uh, proof of it is the Antikythera mechanism, which was found near... Uh, the island of Antikythera, and that is a computer that calculated astronomy and navigation and astrology, um, and uh, it was a device that was as sophisticated as Swiss watches of the modern era. So they did have uh, mechanisms. Uh, there were also batteries back then. There are drawings of what looked like airplanes and light bulbs, um, so who knows what we'll discover. And now back to you, Bill. <laughs> well, we're going to start with, uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right. We're going to hit the uh, Middle East a bit. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Al Jazeera, uh, who built an automaton, automata, how do you say that? Automata uh, in 1206. That, that's right. And he was a uh, Turkestan writer and inventor. Uh, he was part of the Islamic Golden Age. He wrote a book of knowledge of the Indian ingen ingenuous uh, mechanical devices. He produced many of those devices using camshafts, crankshaft wheels, gears, and other mechanisms. Um, you just went into the restaurant trays. He had uh, on one of his uh, uh, things, he had peacocks and waitresses that actually served drinks and and more. Uh he even had a robot band. He had a, an oh. elephant clock with a humanoid robot striking a cymbal, also a robotic bird chirping, which is uh, a lot of this was for entertainment and for utility. And uh, uh -huh. he pulled it all together. Uh, uh, he's hooked into AI and, 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 and he created mechanical men, uh, musical fountains and more, 
Uh, famous one was, um, well, this is after him, actually. We're now moving into another period. Uh, it was named after the uh, knight Lancelot du Luck of uh, King Arthur's uh, time, I guess, which was 1220. Arthur and Lancelot, uh, they, uh, there goes my, my computer one at the wrong time. Um, with that, this version of this, uh, with Lancelot, it, it depicted shows and uh, what's going on here. And um, uh, it also had a small robotic series of copper knights, uh, which Sir Lancelot would would fight uh, on on his uh, movement piece. Um, somebody came along uh, in in, uh, in uh, twelve twenty five, and. Uh, it was a work called Honeyport, which created a mechanical eagle for church services as it would turn its head to the altar at certain times. So this mm. eagle was hoisted above and uh, would move <laughs> to, the, uh, awesome. uh, to the altar. It, it's unbelievable, some of these things. And, you know, you're talking about with uh, the first one, it's 1220. Here we're talking 1225 to 1250. Uh, um more like in London uh, or old England. And uh, this was really a creative, these were creative works. So far, many of it was for entertainment, but it did serve a, uh, serve a, pers- a, purses, a purpose. Um, going forward, there's the Heathston Mechanical Park in 1300. It was a bridge with androids, mechanical monkeys, and more machines. Um, it was uh, developed by uh, Robert, uh, uh, Robert, I'm trying to see his name here. Um, I don't have the name, but him and his daughter carried on this tradition uh, to approximately uh, his death. And then his daughter uh, came along in 1268 to 1312 and continued the, what they called their idea of an automaton park. Continuous modifications led to a wooden hermit who spoke to visitors as they came in. I don't know how they did that. Uh, But uh, also, uh, uh, this was skilled in every degree, Uh, these uh, mechanical monkeys and more. And again, it's it's almost addressing culture of the times. And you Uh see a a common link of, you know... um, I don't know how these things spread. Uh, they spread readily uh, across countries and, and territories, but they followed the uh, same uh, people follow them and they follow others. And some of it goes back to that 12, to the uh, uh, created, uh, with who had created that mechanical eagle for church services. Uh, and about the, a little later, computational machines and writing machines were given a push by uh, uh, Godfrey, uh, I can't say his name, Lebanitz, uh, who was around from 1646 to 1716. Um, his computational technologies just kept moving faster and faster and able to do much larger uh, computations. And uh, this is the time, too, that uh, uh, books are starting to get uh, printed. Mm-hmm. So we, we're seeing more and more uh, adaptability to this. Um, 
uh, book writing machines were appearing in were, were appearing uh, in 1716. I'm thinking of uh, the English writer uh, Jonathan. Oh God, uh, I think he wrote a book Ivanhoe. Uh, that uh, was one of the first books to be printed in this uh, format. There was also the Gutenberg uh, printing press, which printed yeah. Bibles, I think, was much earlier. Um, and uh, what, ha- what happened in, the, in this period is that uh, religious uh, automatons or creations in churches and cathedrals, uh, like the Strasbourg astronomical clock in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, uh, this, this is the cathedral that burnt, I guess, last year or the year before. Um, yes. And anyway, the clock was started in 1352. 1547, the clock was upgraded with bird automatons, but it stopped working in 1788. And in 1838, I don't know why it took so long, a new mechanism for this clock, which was angels with life-size figures of Christ and his uh, 12 disciples, coming from a clock. All of this was to praise the Christian religions of the time. And uh, they were pretty much universal. Now, here's what I don't know if Da Vinci ever got, I've seen a picture of it. I don't know if Da Vinci ever finished it, but he too built a robot. Uh, his period of life was 1452 to 1590, 19, not 1590. And, uh, his interests were always wide. He had so many things to uh, uh, conquer. Uh, he had many drawings on machines, but his robot knight had movable parts, had a pulley system to move arms and legs in different directions. Uh, we don't know for sure if he ever built it, uh, but Da Vinci um, had uh, worked with a Italian Spanish engineer who built a uh, a Franciscan monk for Philip II of Portugal and for his son, who was very sick. Uh, it worked, uh, and it had some work on the son. Um, now, I'm going into the uh, um, what we were talking about before, the golem, which okay. was in 1580. And uh, that was a, uh, was a Jewish version that is actually created in 1560. It's inscribed with religious words used to protect Jews in Prague in literature, in literature and in life. A golem is a shapeless mass, but much could be done uh, to improve it. And uh, that was generally the case. Um, and uh, it, at least for a time, whether superstition or out-and-out fear, it kept them safe. Jews faced a lot of persecution in uh, Christian Europe, um, and uh, that's really a sad commentary. Um, yes. Next, I'm going to um, we're going to step up, and I'm not quite sure uh, what Hobbes Hobbes and his Levantin. I don't know if I can even say it. I'm <laughs> Levantin, um, which was. Um, which was, many people refer to Hobbes as the patriarch of artificial intelligence. For example, in his, his introduction, Hobbes compares the body to a mechanical engine, nature, or what he called the art, where God hath made and governs the world is by the art of man. 
limited that man can make an artificial animal. For seeing life is but a motion of limbs, the beginning whereof in some principal part within, why may I say that all automatana engines that move, move themselves by springs and wheels. And uh, they did have an artificial life. Uh, he, he elaborated and said, for what is the heart but a spring? And the nerves, but so many strings. And the joints, but so many wheels, giving motion to a whole body. Um, so Hobbes gets a pat on the back, uh, more so than many, for the, uh, his role in artificial intelligence. Um, and there, there, there's more. Um, uh, uh, in 1714, again, the German philosopher and mathematician Gottfried Leibniz uh, wrote a, uh-huh. a, a Christian called the Monodology, <laughs> uh, which he imagined uh, an infused machine as big as a mill that was capable of thinking and feeling. He also revealed that, that if he could explore inside, we would find nothing but pieces that push one against another and never anything else. Uh, he was How conscious of artificial intelligence uh, processes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they all were getting uh, conscious of it. It was from what was games or drinks uh, to whatever. Uh, we're moving along, and uh, what we're getting into now in 1726 is a book writing engine uh, called the Legato Book Writing Engine. Uh, it was uh, the first book uh, that ever appeared on it was Gulliver's Travels. I, I made a mistake here. And that was published in 1726 by uh, Jonathan Swift, uh, who lived from 1667 uh, to 1745. You know, Hercules, I went to Buckingham Palace or I guess actually the church next to it, yeah. And uh, he is buried in the floor, um, uh, Jonathan Swift. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. It was part of the palace or part of the uh, cathedral there. Gulliver, uh, uh, it's really, what, Gulliver, what happens in Gulliver's Travels is we see the first discussion of a, artificial intelligence as what they saw. Uh, okay. Gulliver is led to this device which uh, occupies 20 square feet in area and has various wooden surfaces linked together by slender wires. And there's a tie-like surface which is covered with paper on which were written all the words of their language. And there are several modes, tenses and declensions, but without any order. Uh, mm-hmm. Gulliver describes the device as the pupils at his command took each of them hold of an iron handle whereof there were 46 round the edges of the frame and giving them a sudden turn the whole disposition of the words was entirely changed he then commanded the pupils or these parts on this uh, uh, machine that he was writing about uh, to read the several lines softly as they appeared on the frame and where they found three or four words together that might make part of a sentence that uh, they um, they passed on to four remaining boys who were scribes. At every turn, the words shifted into new places, and the square bits of the wood 
train moved up and down. Um, people have written about this. Uh, as I said, I've seen, I've read Gulliver's uh, Travels as a, a, a kid and uh, all the, uh, uh, almost the, I remember the animated uh, pages in that book where Gulliver's tied down by the little people or whatever uh, uh-huh. in, in that story. I think I read that book in the eighth grade or something along, along those lines. Um, now we're moving into 1738, and there's a 29-year-old French watchmaker named Jacques de Vacusen, who lived from 1709 to 1782. And uh, he exhibited his work in the Garden of the Tuileries, uh, which I believe is in France. And okay. um, yeah, and it's, I'll try to describe this book. It's like a, uh, this clock. Uh, it's an automaton, but it's a. Uh, it looks like a giant bird. It has all the gauges of a watch. Uh, their feet. Uh, there are all kinds of things clambering around it. Uh, it. Uh, it was considered to be uh, a robotic ent- entity, and uh, the ducks. The fascination with the duck was yes, uh, there was. Things always added to him, which makes the appearance in Thomas Pinchon's highly acclaimed 1997 novel, Mason, uh, Max, Mason and Dixon, which were the uh, which were the creature, is where the creature becomes conscious and follows and terrifies a French chef with his uh, beak of death. So that that actually made the it down to that? the 1990s, the book, and. Uh, he created a, 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 a these guys were really creative in so many ways. Steve uh, Conson, my French is terrible, uh, he created a marvelous automaton flute player driven by several, several bellows attached to three windpipes. There were gears and tams that triggered levers that uh, controlled the flute player's fingers, tongue, and lips. The mechanized flutist was the first example of what Diderot Diderot's encyclopedia defines as an android. That is a human figure uh-huh. performing human functions. And, uh, and that carried out to about the 1740s. And Thompson uh, designed many other machines, including those that weave silk, which caused uh, human silk workers to rebel and pelt him with stones in the street because uh, <laughs> he would take the jobs. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and some of this stuff also wound up in the the Haydn, uh, the Heiden uh, mechanical part that we described a few minutes ago, um, and, and uh, with a robot knight uh, circular uh, 1495. Um, so the, the progress as we're moving on, and we're getting later and later. We're just a few years before the uh, uh, American Revolution, um, uh, and we come up with another one. And this is uh, the Man- Mechanical Turk, which was a chess-playing android created in 1770 mm-hmm. by a Hungarian uh, inventor, Wolfgang von Kempelen, who was around 1734 to 1804. And it was made and presented to the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, uh, the machine itself appeared to play an excellent game of chess as it defeated players in Europe 
and the Americas <laughs> includes, included. <laughs> it reminds me of later on when the uh, we had a, uh, a, a computer robot or something play chess with a world uh, chess champion. I remember uh, that. And, such, and, and, and people that played on this chessboard, including Napoleon Bonaparte and Benjamin Frank, uh, Franklin, this chess playing character was life-sized. He was, again, a life-sized android, and he was adorned with a robe, turban, and black beard, set at a large cabinet with a chessboard at top, and actually used its hands to move chess pieces. The secret, there was a secret to its operation, which um, was only revealed much later. Uh, Templin would actually open the cabinet doors before play to reveal a clockwork machinery inside, and apparently no visible space for a human to hide. But even so, people understand the Turk to be a sophisticated trick, and it caused people to wonder what kinds of work machines were capable of and what, you can, what human capabilities machines might replace. And we have those same thoughts today. Yes, we uh, do. You know, as these machines are developing, uh, whether we're talking about third uh, third generation or sixth generation based on the classifications, uh, it seems that work will be taken away from human hands and, uh, uh, and very sophisticated work. I'll start at the lower end. Yes. This is going to let the dust go out of the, to the coffee and then he's going to be in the upstairs for the bedroom. Okay. <laughs> These dogs fight me or please. <laughs> Uh, you know, my, my my dog started barking for no reason during the last segment, <laughs> so I had to mute uh, uh, my end of the conversation because uh, whatever it was that was spooking her, I couldn't see it. Okay. Well, it, it happens here every night. I fell down a flight of stairs. Um, but anyway, uh, people understood the Turk to be a sophisticated trick. Never let it. It nevertheless caused people to wonder what, as I said, what kinds of work would it replace? Uh-huh. Um, um, many uh, articles were written about how the Turk could have operated. For example, Edgar Allan Poe, we know him, suggested that uh, incorrectly that the player sat inside the Turk android's body. Uh, Charles Babbage, one of the fathers of modern computers, uh, was likely inspired by the Turk as Babbage ordered, uh, wondered about whether the machine could think or at least perform highly sophisticated compute computations, which he began to work on in his uh, mechanical computing machine. Um, hold on. A, uh, I'm going to move on. Uh, Charles Babbage was around 1822. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, one of the books about him was uh, that came out later in 1990 was that e elephants don't play chess. Checkers okay. and, uh, <laughs> and AI. <laughs> but maybe they do. <laughs> I'm just joking. Okay. I, now get, uh, I imagine they don't get a lot of opportunity to, but maybe they do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen monkeys or some organs organism play uh, uh, chess in a circus or something, uh, maybe even a bird or, you know, some kind of a, a something. Um, I'm now heading to France, and this is the period of okay. 1845 to 1906, and um, 
the uh, the main character is named Jacquet Throws Automat. Well, this gentleman created uh, an automaton, and uh, uh-huh. uh, or for him it was actually tall mannequin dolls left behind in a panic, and uh, uh, that probably during the plague, and uh, he used those uh, to create life life automatons or uh, with robot like beings. And uh, a particular set of 18th century automatons, I can't pronounce these things, that might serve as an example of early ancestors of computers, given the complexity and programmability of these androids. So even at this period, these people were thinking of computers. They had them in mm-hmm. mind, and I'm sure Babbage had something to do with it. Uh, there were, we, we talked about the, uh, what is it, the Abacus um, yeah, the that Abacus. was used to count. Uh, that was an early foray into, into things, and uh, uh, and much everybody said on the back. None of the stuff um, uh, it really rolled off the back of somebody else before them, and they picked it up and refined it and made it better. Uh, we've right. jumped now. Uh, we're in, into 1774 with this uh-huh. this uh, French model, uh, but the the progress kept going on. And here's my favorite of the day: it's Frankenstein. Okay. Uh, Frankenstein was written during the first industrial revolution uh, as uh, a writer Pablo Gallo uh, wrote a while back for the uh, World Economic Forum which just recently took place uh, a few days ago and the dangers of artificial intelligence is a prominent theme in the novel of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus 1818 by Mary Shelby, uh, who lived from uh, lived to uh, from 1797 to 1851. In the novel, scientist Victor Frankenstein robs a slaughterhouse and cemeteries in order to construct a creature from various parts, which he then emanates with a spark of life. Meanwhile, he basically re, uh, reflects on what he has created, and uh, and uh, he's thinking about achieving immortality. Uh, in that work, life and, and death appear to deal to take place in evil, equal portions. And as we know, uh, uh, Victor destroys the unfinished, created an unfinished uh, female uh, companion for the monster. And the monster yes. is never actually referred to by name. It comes, or is called Frankenstein, kills Elizabeth the scientist's wife. And by the end of the novel, uh, Victor has pursued his creation to the North Pole where Victor dies, uh, which is uh, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know is if that, anybody uh, went to the North Pole in 1818 or, or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, those but, are the uh, scientists of their day, and they, they took medicine and other concepts uh, uh, that were developing, and like Dracula too. Dracula was uh, uh, a lot more uh, medical than uh, it, it seems to us now, because it talked about a lot of uh, things like blood transfusions that back then were um, very new. Um, but we're at the end of our time. Thanks, Bill. You brought us all the way to the modern era, which is where we live. Well, we're, and, uh, we're getting through this book. <laughs> we have a, a great... We'll background to start dealing with a problem that uh, is being created uh, now. What is the name of that book again? I'll post it. 
it's artificial intelligence. Uh, it's an illustrated history. There's great pictures in this. Uh, it's written by a guy who has written a lot on uh, artificial intelligence. His name is Clifford A. Pickover, P-I-C-K-O-V-E-R. I'm excited to read this. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, the journals, uh, this is all going to take place rather fast in our, our nation, whether it's a three-tier thing or a six-tier uh, classification system. We're there. And this is going to be where robots do everything. And we're going to face some of the problems that people thought about long ago. They're coming. I mean, the Walmarts are going to use less workers. Uh, Amazon uh, coding, uh, which occurred, which is followed in your American workforce uh, organization. Coding is going to disappear because the new robots and, and systems will be able to code and think themselves. So we're, we're facing a lot of change. And uh, we have to watch out for uh, the competitions getting tight for us with China. Uh, for instance, Chinese kids really are using instruments to learn uh, and using AI in the process, while American kids fare less with uh, AI instruments and rely on more standard teaching methods. Uh, we have to deal with the uh, tele telephone situation, which is coming through with, uh, how do you say the circle is, Huawei, uh, which has just garnered a place in Great Britain. Uh, we're going to be carrying our own, maybe using working with Norway uh, to create that next generation of uh, speeded software and instrument. But we're going against China. And the thing that I wanted to tell you, I looked at how the world ranks on artificial intelligence, and China is way down the list. Almost all the countries in the first 20, except for Japan, are European or the U.S. Uh, and rankings on five categories of AI. And uh, I'm worried what happens because China... We're going to have to tackle that one another day. Um, because we have our, our next segment coming up. Bill, thank you. As always, uh, very informative, very thought-provoking, and uh, um, we have another challenge we need to deal with, so we will. Um, be well, my friend. Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned earlier that you fell down. I hope you're feeling better, and uh, I'll talk to you I'm very mad. soon. Okay. I had a shot in the spine. I'm doing much better. <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> glad. Take care. You too. Bye-bye, Bill. Uh, we're going to take a very brief uh, break. We're going to listen to Antler Crown and Standing Stone, and then we'll be back for Unarian Revelations. <laughs> Green, 
that that's our 66th anniversary. So that is incredible. It's going to be awesome. a wonderful celebration. And uh, now, uh, tonight I'd like to learn about what their lives were like before they uh, uh, met and founded uh, Unarius. Uh, I guess we'll start with the moderator because he seems to have become active first. Yes, he uh, grew up in Utah, and he was considered an infant prodigy, not a child prodigy, but an infant prodigy. He, by the three by age three, he had a, a really high education. He had read the Bible through, and he, um, in his school years, he corrected some of the scientific or science textbooks, which kind of embarrassed the science teacher. But he, because of his advanced um, spiritual development, he brought a higher understanding that clarified many of the astrophysics or astronomy concepts that he encountered. So he uh, was very interested in science. He became very interested in electronics. He worked as electronics bench technician, test engineer, and a radio, a, a, a TV and radio repairman, and used the oscilloscope. So he was um, very versatile in electronics and science. So he was telling people that his polarity would understood what his mission was all about. He described Ruth Norman to many, many people because he saw wow. her psychically, clairvoyantly. And he was looking and looking and looking. And finally, one day in Los Angeles, there's a, an expo that was taking place, and lo and behold, they met there, and then they decided, you know what, we're, we're going to start this mission that he had in his mind. So he had several psychics had seen clairvoyantly advanced spiritual masters around him holding books, and he told Ruth that he had many books to bring through psychically, mm -hmm. you know. And later on, when she um, asked psychics about her mission, they said the same thing. They saw advanced spiritual beings in her aura, and she was told that she was going to help bring through New Age books that clarified spiritual spirituality. So wow. he brought to, he brought um, a tremendous love of science and electronics and he he knew his he knew his mission was to help clarify what spirit is all about. So Lonnie, maybe you want to talk about Ruth Norman. Well, just to add to before we go on to Ruth, um to some of the the amazing facts about him, um he had an oversized head and at three or four he wore like a seven and a half size hat and his mother almost died in the delivery because his head was so big. Mm. Um, he taught himself to read and write before the age of three. He, uh, I think it was, he was seven or eight and he won an argument with his father who was, who had several degrees like psychology, um, physiology, etc. doctor. 
and, and the argument was on the nature of magnetic flux. So you, you kind of get an idea of, you know, how smart he was, uh, even yeah. As, yeah, even as a child. And then um, one of the other important things that he did um, was he was around 23, and he met um, Philo T. Farnsworth. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he went on to develop and commercialize um, uh, the Orthicon tube, which which David can talk more about if if needed, okay. um, but allowed television to come through. And he wow. explained and he sketched a workable design of that. It was like during a rainstorm and a you know they came in out of the the rain and he did that. Um, I don't think he ever got credit for it, but you know again it's just showing how you know advanced he was in his his uh, understanding of things. And but on the other hand, he also you know, did manual labor. He wasn't just, um, you know, in his head. So like when he had a wife and, and child to support, then, you know, he did what he had to do. So, um, and then, you know, again, before he met Ruth, um, he had several different, um, I don't know, phases to his life where he was developing his clairvoyance. And um, one of the important phases was uh, after he had an emergency appendectomy. And um, we can get into that in a different context. But after that, he had increased psychic abilities and he went around to different places, um, you know, like dance halls. This is during the Warriors. And he talked to thousands of, of people and he told them about. Uh, like specifically, I mentioned the war because um, the the sweethearts and wives and loved ones at home, he would tell them first things about uh, themselves or their homes or, or personal things so that they knew that he was psychic. Uh, you know, they, they believed him because no one else would know the things that he told them. And then he went on to tell them things about uh, their loved ones over in the, the war theater. And um, what was cool was not only was that, you know, often comforting to know, you know, what was happening to their menfolk, but um, once he placed his consciousness on them, the the forces of light were like in action. And those men that he talked about, um, they were never killed and none of them were ever seriously injured. So that was that's pretty phenomenal. Yes, <laughs> you know, just give you, as we get to later on talking about the, the kinds of information that he was bringing through in the Unarius texts, you know, it's good to see as you are, you're asking about the, you know, the beginnings of that. And so it wasn't just like all of a sudden, this is something that he developed just like Ruth, when we get to Ruth, that they have developed over, you know, uh, thousands of incarnations, really in spiritual growth and following the spiritual pathway. And this was, this lifetime was a culmination of that. And uh, that's an interesting uh, um, series of uh, tales to relate, which we'll explore on another uh, day uh, because they have been to this uh, planet uh, many times and have been uh, uh, integral to our spiritual evolution. Uh, so th those are very exciting uh, stories. And if we had more time, I'd love to go into them tonight. Um, David, before we go to Ruth, do you have um, anything you'd like to add to um, Ernest's life? Um, 
he um, became a minister, and he purposely visited um, certain churches in the Los Angeles or California area. And he wasn't really religious. He just wanted to um, test or contact that whole uh, religion movement. And he just he just wanted to, um, you know, sharpen his pencil, so to speak. He, and so he became quite popular. In fact, as Lonnie said, because of his readings for people who were overseas, um, he gained quite a reputation for healing. So many of the people he encountered at dance halls, especially, um, they can't they, – they came to him for healing purposes as well. So in the same way that Jesus reached out his hand and was able to touch and heal certain people, Mm -hmm. um, in the same exact way, at least a more advanced way, many people in the dance halls that he visited were healed. And some of them were instantaneous. It's incredible, the story of this guy, this, Dr. Norman or Ernest Norman's healing ability. It's incredible. That is incredible. So now we'll go to Ruth, uh, who's also lived a very incredible uh, life. Uh, Lonnie, do you want to start uh, talking about Ruth? Uh, well, she was definitely the overall term of workaholic. If we're talking about her life leading up to when she met Ernest L. Norman, she was involved in all kinds of different jobs. She would she would start a job and then once she mastered it, then she'd lose interest with it and she'd go on to the next thing. But she owned cafes, she was in real estate, she owned a lodge with many, many cabins up in the, uh, the mountains. Um, Big Bear? Yeah. Up, up near, well, I didn't think he'd know where Big Bear was. Um, but anyway, and um, as David had mentioned earlier, also when the um, the men were following her around with books, the, the a detail about that was that they were very, very tall or huge, you know, men, you know, like, I don't know how many feet, 15 feet high or something like that. Again, they, yeah. this was a, a psychic vision, but, and they were carrying these really, really large books. And that was indicating, they had long white beards uh, that was indicating uh, the wisdom, you know, what we associate like wisdom, like an, the ancient, um, you know, uh, seers or whatever. Uh, and that, that the, the the books were going to be very, very important. So they're, how tall they were, and I think Ernest said he saw them once where their heads went right through the top of the the church where he was. And um, the books were very big to show the importance of the wisdom that they were going to be bringing through. So, um, and she had a, a, she developed a milk route, um, just very astute, very uh, capable uh, with her hands and stuff, did things that, you know, men would look at, you know, just wonder and awe. It's like, how come a woman is doing those kinds of things? She didn't like to be pigeonholed that, you know, that like I, anything you can do, I can do. 
you know, and in fact, when she was being hired for jobs, they would ask, can you do this? And she would say yes, even though she'd never done it before because she knew if she said no, she wouldn't get hired. So then, and she would learn really, really quick. And again, maybe start on the bottom and, you know, think a month or two, she was in the next uh, level up, you know, of the department and until she reached the top. And then, as I said, she'd lose interest and she'd go on to some, some other endeavor. But it was all really um, accumulating funds so that once she got together with Dr. Norman, um, finances wouldn't be an obstacle because, you know, she had put together enough. I mean, she was an astute businesswoman. So um, most people, you know, hear about her, think about her in her her days with Dr. Norman and afterwards, those years where, you know, she was tremendously psychic and she wasn't involved so much in the, in the physical world. But initially, you know, she, that was part of, you know, her role was to be um, uh, a polarity for him in many, many ways, not only to, you know, take down the books and different things, but for na- financial stability and um, all other kinds, because he was, going to be so much in in uh working in a mental way that she was that me, uh, physical polarity and stability for him let me add that she wrote in her biography that she um knew early on in her life that there was a spiritual um guidance that she was listening to it was guiding her so she mm-hmm. followed it she listened to that inner guidance and so the normans both had that inner guidance and they wanted to create this mission um, to show other people that they can do the same thing. They can learn how to contact their higher self and learn to be inwardly guided. So like Lonnie said, she was so inwardly guided to learn about finances and real estate purchases that she was able to, uh, in 1974, purchase a center in El Cajon, California, near San Diego, to help further um, the Unarius mission. And she did that. And she was incredible the way she mastered it. So she had a great deal of inner guidance and self-mastery. And they certainly didn't want to keep it to themselves as a secret. They wanted to create this beautiful spiritual organization to show other people how it could be done as well. Wow. And she always even even again before she met Ursel Norman, she followed that inner guidance and she relates an example of, you know, like when she didn't follow it, she went against her inner prompting and everything went wrong. I mean she had all kinds of problems with <laughs> one of the cafes that she bought. We all learned so that. that was a big lesson. Yeah, that was a big <laughs> lesson to her that she always needed to follow that inner guidance and, and she wouldn't go wrong. And that's how she was able to, again, accumulate the finances to uh, finance the mission later on. So So one of the people that – let me quickly add that one of the people that um, Ernest Norman saw that was huge um, in statue was um, Elijah, the old prophet. So many of the books um, contain – wisdom and valuable wisdom um, from the old masters and Elijah uh, was one of those masters who um, was overshadowing him and helping to bring through uh, these books but basically 
Lunarius is a collection. If you could put together in book format all the wonderful um, wisdom and um, spiritual sayings or quotes or uh, follow uh, directions to follow from the old masters mm-hmm. and um, from all over the um, this galaxy and um, many, many of them that have been known in our history, if the, you could all put them together and put their wisdom and book format, this is what Unarius was about, what Dr. Norman wrote about. And the first few books that came through were poetry books. And some yeah, of the poetry the, the that one reads, some of the books and um, poetry books um, called the Athenium and the Elysium, yeah. when a student reads them, they're healing, they're tuned in to great healing energies. And some of the people who read these books do uh, obtain spiritual healing. Oh, and one other quick thing. She also looked into all kinds of different uh, metaphysical groups, but she said, um, even though she became, uh, I don't, I know, I think it was with Bales or something, she got her teach her uh, certificate to be able to teach and different things. She said it was never, she never felt like that was what she was um, meant to do or that it really had all the answers that she was looking for until she met Dr. Norman. That is an incredible uh, story. Um, it took a, a little while for the uh, mission to come into focus and to take uh, shape. What were their early days like together uh, when they began their mission? How did the mission uh, evolve and take root and grow? Well, for one thing, they were quite aware that they were being guided by these advanced spiritual masters and that they were to bring about a spiritual mission, but they were also aware of the negative forces that were trying always to interrupt what they were doing. So some of the books that came through Dr. Norman, um, Ruth Norman tried to get them published and many, many of the publishers would say, no, we don't like that. It's not, it's not acceptable. So Ruth Norman uh, went within and she um, started, she decided that she had to start publishing the books herself. So Unarius started publishing their own books and we, they could not take chances that the books would be edited or altered in any way. This is what happened to Jesus's teachings 2000 years ago. They became severely altered. So when they lived together, they decided to get married Um quite often they had to seek out a very quiet place for Dr. Norman to bring through these, um, these wonderful books. And he would use real to real tape recorders. Cassettes were invented at that time. So obviously you didn't want planes flying over and whatnot. So they always sought out a quiet place and it wasn't uh, sometimes it wasn't too long before the negative forces would cause loud barking dogs to go by and uh, cause all kinds of things. So they had to move to another home or a rental. So their story tells them how they were inwardly guided to find another place to live. And sometimes it's quite miraculous how they found other places to live. They were always being guided from the inner planes of light. 
And as long as they trusted that inner light, that inner knowing, um, everything went very well. So that was part of the early days. So um, also um, in the very beginning, like when you started um, speaking poetry, I mean, they were driving. I think they were driving down here in San Diego when, when he started voicing poetry. And she just, you know, quickly looked for a piece of paper and pen to start taking it down. And um, took it down in longhand. And in fact, the first, um, the Voice of Venus, she took down in longhand too. Uh, and then eventually she got a tape recorder, but um, she had never learned to type. And she, that was one of the miraculous things too, where she decided, you know, she didn't have time and she needed to, to do it right away. So she actually covered the keys of the typewriter and she learned to typewrite overnight. So mm. um, all of the, all of the things state, that she. Yeah. Yeah, all of the things that she needed to do, so the typesetting and, um, you know, when, when he, she needed to find, you know, some other way, you know, get the get it recorded, the reel-to-reel in different forms like that, and then to learn how to uh, typeset the books and, you know, how to uh, get them published and bound and get lists um, for, you know, potential students and all these things that she'd never done before but she just dove into it and she was guided by you know her higher self and the spiritual brothers and so when the need came up she would be guided how to do it and would would be able to just jump right in without you know taking a course stopping you know she couldn't stop and take a course in these things or the, One of the you know that- they they would Sorry. need like like uh, a machine or something like that, and and the next day, you know, the the ad would come in, or she didn't tell Dr. Norman, and and he would come in with an ad in the paper and say, "You were th- just thinking about this, so uh-huh. you know, here here's an ad about it." And they and another interesting thing is, you know, they developed their psychic abilities, of course, between each other, and so th- even though they had an intercom in the house, they never used it. They just knew, you know, as soon as one person was thinking something like, you know, it's time for breakfast or whatever it is, you know, he would come in and, and already know. And and he he used to say things, um, you know, he, like, I, I like to keep my pencil sharpened. So, you know, whatever was going on, if she was grocery shopping or they were at a restaurant or whatever, he was always commenting on what, what people were thinking. You know, he would talk about, oh, you know, you picked up the tomatoes and they weren't ripe or, you know, and he'd go, oh, that cashier was really flustered when you were, you know, and put your groceries back in your cart and uh, blah, 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 whatever. You know, he'd, he'd tell her about everything that she went through. One of the things that Dr. Norman did um, was to – give people who wrote in past life readings. This was extraordinary. Some of the readings are very lengthy and very detailed about their past lives. Um, some of the lives went into um, Atlantis and before that Lemuria and Greece mm-hmm. and Rome and the American Indians. And they're astounding to read. They're so beautiful. They're so detailed. So that was one of the services that, Dr. Norman offered in the early part of the mission. And I can he did that. There's a lot of uh, information contained in the Unarius uh, material that uh, you'd have to be 
a specialist or very familiar with uh, uh, some of the things in there. There are like a bunch of throwaway lines, uh, it seems, but they actually contain a phenomenal amount of information about the uh, ancient mysteries uh, uh, during the Olympian era in uh, Greece, Rome, and the rest of the Mediterranean. Uh, and I've been able to extract Absolutely. a lot of insights uh, by reading this information. So it is remarkable. And the, the writings contain more than you can digest in a lifetime, but they contain much more than that. Uh, so uh, it, it's really amazing uh, all the material that they produced and its consistency. And, Absolutely. Uh, what and David was, the... was saying. Go ahead, Lonnie. What what David was saying about the Kashuk readings, um, we've been bringing out some of the letters um, that he he wrote about 400 of uh, did a, about 400 Akashic readings where you know they could be you know an hour or two long in the dictation just just incredibly detailed. So you might say, oh well, you know other people give psychic readings. Well, if you heard these, you would hear the distinct differences. You know where he gives the year and exactly what they were doing, and you know what kind of foods they like and what kind of clothes they wore and exactly you know what they did that caused the problem that they're writing in about. I mean they're amazing, but he he did that and he did the lecture some lectures about. A, for about a year and and they were just so draining for him that after that he stopped and then he focused just on bringing through the books but we're so fortunate that you know we have the you know like the infinite concept of concert creation was one of the mm -hmm. series of lectures that he did and um on all of these letters that we've been reading in class of the akashic readings it's just amazing you know we're just so thankful that he did it if only for that year one of the um, the souls that came through him psychically to explain certain scientific misunderstandings was Albert Einstein. And because Ernest Norman had such a great love of science and theories, he continued where Einstein left off. There's two books specifically, Tempus Presidium and Tempus Invictus, that go into the continuity of Einstein's equations. And they go wow. into the cosmos how everything works, how atoms work. And there's a great deal of misunderstanding in our sciences that will have to be cleared up in our future new age that's coming about, the Aquarian age. And we're at the very beginning of that. So it's incredible to read these texts about how Einstein did not really understand gravity, but his relativity equations helped tremendously without them we couldn't launch you know satellites or anything right i have to revisit those books i haven't read those books in a very 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 long time so perhaps it's time to revisit them <laughs> yes so dr norman and well both both the Normans thought that each student can eventually learn to read their own akashic records it just takes a great deal of study and patience and work. And that's one of the things I love about Unarius, that uh, um, basically Unarius uh, has preserved all this lore and it helps point the way uh, to your own connection with uh, uh, the universe. And uh, that is a great and incalculable gift uh, that uh, you give to humanity. So thank you for that. Now, um, Ernest Norman um wanted to provide an understanding of God. 
and um, a true understanding of God, meaning there was no deity or person, male or female. It was a universal energy. It's everywhere. Everything is a part of it. And the the God force that most everybody um, wants to understand how to bring more into their life is love, infinite love, not the personal romantic love, but this goes way beyond that. And that's what they taught. That's what they functioned with is this infinite love. Now, when Ernest Norman went back to his spiritual world in 1971, um, the psychic energies were um, transferred to Ruth Norman, and she eventually became known by her spiritual name she had in Atlantis called Ayoshana. And then she was given... um, her true spiritual name, Uriel, universal, radiant, infinite, eternal light. So that's what she taught above everything else is how to love ye one another, how to get past your karmic situations you have with each other, how to resolve everything with love, infinite love. And this is what Jesus taught is the true nature of God, and it's not the God of the Old Testament that was one army could pray to, and <laughs> they could pray for victory over the other army. That is not what God is all about. God is a part of everything, every human being. And it's up to us as students of spirit to understand that God force, that God self, their super consciousness, and learn how to fan it, to grow it. So it becomes something that overshadows each one of us, and we learn to follow that inner guidance. Very powerfully said. We're at the end of our journey today. Lonnie, do you have any last words you'd like to offer before uh, you share um, how people can uh, contact Unarius and become involved with the teachings? Okay. Well, I will leave with a little bombshell since I – I think this was just covering the the early formative years and where we'll be doing, you know, the second phase in some other um, interview. But, uh, you know, one of the purposes of uh, Dr. Norman and this phase of the mission was the continuity of the the works of Jesus to um, rectify 2,000 years of um, misinterpretations and misconceptions and and rewrites that were incorrect. That was one thing. And also to gather together all of the the people who were uh, involved in the lifetime of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and to give them a chance to turn around their karma. So, in other words, you know, this is a continuity. This is another. Uh, reincarnation of Jesus. So that's something to think about as we end the program. Well, thank you very much. Uh, To many people, that would be indeed a bombshell. So thank you. That's an excellent place to uh, leave things because now people need to think about it. Um, How can folks uh, contact Unarius, uh, learn more about uh, Unarius and become part of Unarius? Our website is unarius.org. That's U-N-A-R-I-U-S dot O-R-G. Or we have a toll-free number, 800-475-4, I mean, 7062. 800-475-7062. And um, thank you for having us, Hercules. Well, thank you for being and, here. Ron, want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, well, well, one other thing um, along the lines of what David just said, we have a, a YouTube um, channel, we have Facebook, we have a blog, and you can find all that information on um, the website. But just one other thing about what I had ended with is um, how you tell whether something is true or, you know, like so, so many people claim to be famous people is by their works, by their fruit. So if you investigate, you read some of the texts of Unarius, you feel the power, the light, the energy that are, is contained within all of the books that is in, you know, really no other text that has that same um, light and intelligence from uh, hundreds or thousands of advanced masters that you become in tune with when you read those books. That's the proof of the pudding. So it's not just, you know, cl making a claim. It's, you know, it's it's obvious when you read the books that that's, that's, that's the truth. And he was very humble. He wouldn't have said that. But other people, the mediums, uh, many people have confirmed that. But it's something people confirm for themselves when they when they pick up a book. And, and, and Ernest Norman did not want to be the center focus. He wanted mm -hmm. the teachings to be the center focus, not him as a personality. I found the teachings to be uh, very powerful and uh, very experiential. Uh, when they say that you can uh, basically have experiences and connect through the books, uh, there's no exaggeration there. I've had uh, very many wonderful uh, and amazing experiences uh, um, interacting with uh, the teachings. So uh, um, I, I can vouch for that. Well, uh, we really appreciate you, um, all of the work and time that you've put in to make um, information available to people who are searching for it. So thank you so much um, for having us uh, on, I, on your podcast. Honored. Thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, uh, if you find something that's amazing, you want to share it. So <laughs> that's the spirit with which uh, um, I'm doing this. But thank you for your kind words, Lonnie. Well, thank you for having us. Thank and you. Lonnie and David, I look forward to the next time we're all uh, together. Um, and I believe we have a minute left. Does anybody have any last thoughts to offer yes. before we close yeah. up the night? Okay. Now, Ruth Norman had an incredible psychic ability to contact other worlds because of her developed higher self. She used two subchannels to do it. And one of them in particular that is in the Pleiades constellation uh, the planet name is Vixal they have an extreme history of AI artificial okay. intelligence robots and they got into a big trouble they're not the only planet that got in trouble with over dependence on AI but it took a spiritual understandings to get out of the situation they were in and um, it took it took uh, Ruth Norman's or Uriel's ability to psychically communicate with the leader of that planet and straighten out or explain to him the road he was going down. He, he unwittingly allowed the robots, by the way, who look just like human beings, to take over most of the work. And the human beings became so lazy all they had to do was just push a button and, and, and things would be happening for them. And all the robots did all of the work. And that is and not the right road to go down. Sure, they're great assistants. We'll need to do. Uh, they're going to cut us off in a second. 
Yes, um, thanks please again, do. Let's we'll do, do it. An episode on that. We'll devote a whole episode Let's, to it. Absolutely. Without a proper spiritual understanding, science tends to go down the wrong road. That is very true. Thanks again, and thanks to all who joined us tonight. Until next time, this is all of us wishing all of you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the Pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journeys be joyous.